We began some time ago, going through Luke, and a few weeks before uh, before Easter, and the, the uh, side note we took there for a few weeks. We were in Luke, and we'd gone through here in Luke chapter 6, which is the Sermon on the Mount, essentially, uh, in Luke's form, and we're going to come to the end of that this morning, and in, in some way look at the end and gain an understanding of what we haven't done yet, but review, because that's an important part of where this this is is at. So our text this morning is going to be in Luke chapter six. You know, when I was a uh, when I was a kid, all oh, about ten years old, we uh, we went on our very first family, real family holiday here in Australia, and we went up to Calberry. Um, and we were very excited about that, and I have a lot of good memories from that that holiday. Um, you know, our first family excursion out into the wilderness of Australia after we had had moved here some years before. And uh, one day while we were there, we were out exploring and uh, looking at the the coastline and on some of the bluffs and the beaches and and things of the beautiful coastline that's up there. And my dad and I were walking out onto one of these bluffs, out onto the rocks there and and, uh, looking around. We're getting close to the water, not too close, not in a dangerous place to be. It was a a, a tourist area. So we were walking out on those rocks and watching the waves um, spray against the, the rocks as they came in and looking in the little pools and things like that to see the little creatures living in there. And it was a good uh, exploration we were having there. But while we were looking around out there, and my dad and I were out on that rock looking around, a big wave came crashing against that rock as uh, the, the waves do. But this one was a, a particularly big one that, that came and and my dad, as, as he looked, he saw, he could see that the, the water was going to come rushing up to where we were. And so because he could see that this, this larger wave than what had been was going to send water rushing up over the rocks to where we were. Now, I remember the water being probably about ankle deep. And the reason I remember that is because I was wearing my new favorite pair of shoes and they got completely soaked. So this water came rushing up. And as my father saw the water come rushing up, He called out to me and he said, stand still, don't move your feet. And so I did. I stood still on that rock and the water came rushing up over my feet and then came rushing back out back to where it came from in the ocean. Now, my father yelled that to me and and told that to me because he knew that if I stayed grounded on that rock, I would be safer But if I tried to move and outrun the wave or move, I would be in danger of slipping and having that water knock me over or wash me out. So he said to me, stand still. Don't move. And so I did. The water came in. The water came out. I would learn something that day, not just about walking on rocks, but something about life from that moment that I have not forgotten. Being grounded on a solid foundation is important for keeping us from being swept away by the waves of life. To be grounded, you know, as a perhaps as a parallel, because we live by the ocean, we've probably all been out to the, the ocean and we've stood on the edge of the water at the beach, haven't we? And we've let the water rush up over our feet and then back out again. And with each wave that comes in and out over our feet on the beach, the, the, the sand underneath us gets washed away. And before long, we find ourselves ankle deep in sand as the sand gets washed from underneath us. 
Let's read this morning from Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 49. It says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth and without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word to gain instruction about how to have a rock-solid life, encourage us and strengthen us today as we do. May we find truth and obedience through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of us wants someone or something to ground us to. To make life stable and sure, to give us some stability and some strength in life. Because in, in some ways, life is, is like standing by an ocean with waves washing over us. Sometimes the waves don't reach us and we just enjoy the view and the serenity as we see the water move in and out or as we see the, the life pass by and serenity. Sometimes it's like the waves that just lap over our feet. And it can be refreshing, but there is also the potential of it being slippery. And sometimes it feels like waves crashing at us angrily, seemingly, trying to knock us over. We want, we need a foundation in this life that will allow us to weather the storms when they come in life but also to enjoy the sunny days when things aren't so violent, when things aren't so troublesome. A solid life is attainable. So many are trying to find what it is that can make life sure, what can make life certain, what can give them some sort of concrete stability to move through a life where we seem to be being pushed from one way to the other or at least trying to be. And a steadfast life is attainable. In fact, in the verses we've just read here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us here that it is possible to have a life with a solid foundation. Of course, ultimately, as we will see, and as many of us already understand, that life is built on him. Jesus is our rock. Luke uh, 6 verse 46 here begins with a very important point. But Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do the things which I say. A solid life, a life which is going to give us stability and strength and certainty as we go ahead, begins by making a choice. There is a choice that must be made to begin with. The choice Jesus puts before us in these verses is how we respond to him. What do we do with what he says to do? It begins with whether we believe Jesus is Lord or not. The reality uh, or, or the truth of your answer to that question 
which is, why do you call me Lord, or what do you think of Jesus? The reality or the truth of your answer to that question isn't found in your words. So the truthful answer to that question isn't just because you say Lord. The truth to the answer to that question, the reality to the answer to that question, is what you do. Because we can easily fool people with what we say, but we can never fully fool people with what we do. What we believe, what we truly believe, will always come out in our actions. Always. Because it's what's inside. So here, Jesus shows us that. So what is the difference, Jesus tells us here, what is the difference between a life that is built on a rock, one that is steadfast, one that is secure and one that is safe, and, and the one that is built on the sand, one that is easily moved by circumstances? The answer is in the very words Jesus says here, because he says in verse 37, whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, Well, that's the man, the person that's built on the rock. In verse 49, it says, But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation. What's the difference between a life that is rock solid and a life that is built on sand? The difference is, do you do what Jesus says? That's what he says. If you hear my words and you do what I say, That will be a sure foundation for your life. But if you hear my words and you ignore them and you don't do what I say, your life will be on sand. And that's the the crux of what Jesus gets at here. So if indeed a solid life is connected to doing what Jesus said and to following what he said, then what has he said that can help us live a rock solid life? The meaning of these verses, the meaning of verses 46 to 49, this parable he gives us of the the two houses built on rock and on sand, is found in understanding what he has told us before. Because that's where he can say, if you hear what I say and you do it, you will be on solid ground. So what has he said? The understanding of this is in the verses before. And so that's what we want to do. We need a rock. So if we're going to have a solid foundation, I have four things this morning I want to give you quickly uh, about how we can have a solid foundation in life. What do we need to have a rock-solid life? Because we need a rock. And the first thing is we need real satisfaction. We need real satisfaction. If we go back into this sermon which Jesus has given us here in Luke chapter 6, We come back to the beginning, and we looked at these some weeks ago at at the beginning where we talk about the Beatitudes uh, in verse 20 through verse 24, verse 26, where each of these uh, virtues that he speaks about speaks about being blessed. Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who, when uh, men hate you, exclude you, uh, for, for the Lord's sake, rejoice. So he uses this word, blessed, which means to be very happy. They said, what we're we're doing here is we're going to find the meaning of what Jesus says about how to have this solid life by looking back over what he has just said, gathering these in together. To be blessed means to be essentially happy, but it describes a depth of happiness. It is quite, uh, quite right 
to read here when it says blessed to read, oh, how very happy. But it's really, I guess, kind of misleading if we just narrow the definition of blessed down to happy. Because we're not really, in our understanding of happy, not really understanding the the depths of it. Because what it speaks of is it speaks of a deep inner joy. To be blessed, as Jesus writes here, to be blessed like this is to have a soul that is completely satisfied. That's what it means to be blessed. To have a soul which is completely satisfied. I mean, you consider some of the things that we have seen as we've looked through these Beatitudes before, some of the things that he describes, and he talks about, about prosperity uh, of life. He talks about contentment. He talks about joy. He talks about reward. All of these things are aspects of what it is to be blessed by God. All of these things are what everybody really in life is looking for. Peace and joy and contentment and reward for what we do. All of these things are found in Jesus. So the question then is, how do we get a life which is so completely satisfying? Jesus gives us the answer here to that, and that is to be very happy, to be completely satisfied, to have true satisfaction, if you will, is knowing God's favor. That's where this blessedness comes from, the favor of God. You're having a blessed life doesn't happen by accident. We don't stumble into it and go, oh, wow, you know, it just turns out that my life has been blessed. And having a blessed life like this doesn't come by hard work either. It's not about how well you do at certain things or how you build certain things or work your life. This type of blessing, this type of satisfaction doesn't come by accident or by hard work. This type of happiness, this type of satisfaction to be blessed like this is to have the favor of God upon you. It's to have God Almighty look on you with pleasure, with favor. It comes from God's presence. And of course, that brings us to a problem. The problem is the Bible tells us that by nature... We are without the presence of God. When we are born into this world, we are not born with the blessing of God upon us like this. We are not born with soul satisfaction. We're born with all of that missing because we are born in sin, which separates us from God, which removes us from his blessing and puts us at odds. And so this is why Jesus came. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. But he says, I have come that they might have life. But then he goes further. And that they might have it more abundantly. Why did he come? So that we might have the blessed life. That we might have complete soul satisfaction. That we might find a life which is secure, rock solid. How does this happen? It happens by believing what Jesus says is true, and that is that believing we're a sinner, believing that Jesus died in our place for that sin, that he rose again in three days for our new life, and in believing that, seeking him for forgiveness and following him. 
See, the truth is, although a lot of people like to look at God and think, wow, he's just an angry, uh, vengeful God, that's not God at all. God is joyful and happy and satisfied in his being. And his desire for you is to know true satisfaction. He wants you to know what life was meant to be. To be completely satisfied in him. So we find amongst these things, what it says about this satisfaction, this joy that he gives, is that it's an absolute certainty. There is no, you will be blessed or you may be blessed. Because if you do this, you will be blessed. Blessed are you. It's a statement of fact. It is also a present reality. That is, you can know this satisfaction right now. You can know what it is to have a secure life, even when you're beaten around by it. You can know what it is to know satisfaction when things don't go your way and when we may not have all that we desire in this life. We can have complete satisfaction now. It also shows us here that this joy, this satisfaction, isn't dependent on the circumstances but a person. My satisfaction in this life, what's going to make me strong and stable and secure, is not dependent on what happens around me. It's dependent on Jesus, despite what happens around me. It is also an endless joy. And one of the things that we find from this sermon of Jesus is that it is the duty of every Christian to pursue this satisfaction. That is our duty as believers, to pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ, to find the joy that he promises and desires for us. And so it can be known. And that's what he shows us as he goes through those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is those that understand their spiritual poverty, who know they need God. And those who recognize that they need God will find God and inherit his kingdom. Those who hunger for righteousness. That is those who not only know their need for God, but desire to pursue him. To grow in him. And what he promises to those who hunger, who desire to know God more deeply, is he says, you will be satisfied. Those, he says, who sorrow over their sin. Verse 21 those who look forward to the hope that he has before us. We're going to have a rock-solid life. The first thing that we need to hear and follow Jesus in is this, that we need real satisfaction. The other thing that Jesus has told us here is not only do we need to have a real satisfaction, but we need outward focus. Our focus in life needs to be outwards. That is, we need to love like God. In verse 32 of Luke 6, it says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love themselves, who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend, lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. We are to love like God. To love like God requires that we look outwards. 
that we see the world and desire to see the world the way God sees it, to love like God. Strength in this life, stability in this life, doesn't come from looking in and looking to ourselves. Our lives are not made more secure. Our lives are not made more steadfast by self-centeredness. That only makes it worse. So Jesus tells us strength of life and character come from looking outwardly in love. Everybody loves the lovable. That's easy. We were watching a a movie the other night with with, uh, Hugh Jackman in it. And I I turned to Kirsten and I said, Oh man, I really want to hate Hugh Jackman, but he's just so likable. He can do everything. You think he's got all this talent, but he's just so likable. Because everybody likes Hugh Jackman. He just seemed like a nice guy. Right? But it's not hard to, to love those who are lovable. In fact, they often make it easy for us. Loving the lovable isn't strong. Loving those who are lovable, well, that's easy. Loving the lovable isn't strengthening either. It's fickle. It's by its very nature shifting Because we all change. We make mistakes. We do the wrong thing. And so at one moment we might be lovable and then the next it becomes difficult. And so we shift and we move. There's no stability in that. Steadfastness of life comes from divine love. Learning to love highly. Learning to love godly. The Bible says that we owe every man love. Everyone. That is our debt to the world. That love isn't simply an expression, but it is an action. Jesus gives two examples here. And here's his thing here. He says in verse 33 that we are to do good to those. That is to love practically. We're to do good. Our love is to be like a rock. But he also says in verse 34 that we're to lend. We're to do good and to lend, in which he means to love graciously. That is, to lend and don't expect anything in return. Do it simply because we love, for the good of others. We're to love practically and we're to love graciously. Why are we to love like this? Why are we to project outwards and look outwards in our life in love? Because that looks like God. That looks like God. Love is a fundamental characteristic of the believer because love is a fundamental characteristic of God himself. Love identifies us with God. And so not only do we need to love like God, looking outwardly, but we need to give like God. He says in verse 37 here, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. says two important things there in the context of what he's saying. And the firstly is, forgive generously. Forgive generously. God's forgiveness is our example of forgiveness. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. 
See, forgiveness is what frees us. Forgiveness is what sets us stable and strong because God's forgiveness is what frees us from sin. And forgiving others is what frees us from hurt and hard hearts. It frees me to truly love. And so he tells us to give generously. A heart of generosity flows from a heart of love and grace. Grace never withholds good from those who need it. It doesn't hold back or just give enough. It gives what is good. It doesn't give out of duty or to meet a standard. Grace fills every space. Grace gives love in abundance and overflowing. We're going to have a rock-solid life. We need to listen to what Jesus says we need to do, and he has said a number of things. And The first is we need real satisfaction. We need outward focus, and thirdly, we need to choose the right teacher. Choose the right teacher. He says for us in verse 39 of Luke chapter 6, and he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? It's okay to laugh at that because Jesus meant it to be funny. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. You need to choose the right teacher. Don't fumble in darkness. Because without Christ, we're all blind. Now, it's probable... It could be expanded, but it's probable these two verses here are directed more specifically to understanding the Pharisees. The text gives us a little bit of leeway here to say it could possibly mean a larger thing. And by the time we get to the end of the text, it's certain Jesus has opened it. But probably the main focus of those two words is on the, the Pharisees, spoken about the Pharisees. Who you learn from is of utmost importance. Who you learn from is of utmost importance. The wrong teacher will lead you into destruction. And that's what he says. You follow a blind person who doesn't know what they can do. Where are you going to go? You're going to end up falling into a ditch. You're going to end up in destruction. Not only that, he says, depending on who you follow, you you put your, your effort into them, you follow them, you learn from them. You're only going to grow as much as that teacher will take you. Can't grow beyond what they have to give as he says of the Pharisees. Like I said before, the truth is, without Christ, every one of us are blind. We're all blind, wandering around in this world. We don't know purpose. We don't know fulfillment. We don't know direction. We're unable to find satisfaction. We're unable to find security and stability in this life. We fumble around in this, in this world in the dark, hoping to feel our way to to some great end without actually knowing what it is we're chasing. Blindly looking for something we have no idea what it is we're actually looking for. Whose mind the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. You know, our world is full of a bunch of blind people pretending to know where they're going, telling others how to get to a place where all guessing is out there. That's how our society works. That's how our, our philosophies and all work. That does not make for a stable life. 
So don't follow another blind person. Like the Pharisees, all of our attempts at finding security and finding satisfaction point us in the wrong direction. Consider, what was the issue Jesus often drew out with the Pharisees? It was because they weren't pointing people to God, they were pointing people to themselves. The problem with the religion they had there was it was all about me. If I do enough right, if I follow the law, if I do this, if I don't do that... The whole system was not built around following the right teacher, but following ourselves. And while it was all about following ourselves and meeting our own selfish desires, it was covered in spirituality. Pretended to be spiritual, but there was no spirituality there. It was selfishness behind spirituality. It was, this is what I think, because this is what I want, this is my agenda, this is my idea, and I will paint it so that it looks spiritual. But in reality, it's me doing what I want, pretending to be spiritual. All of it is really a focus on self. We hide a lot of selfishness behind spirituality. The big problem here is we don't know where we're going yet. Despite that, we tell ourselves that we can make it there on our own. So, rather than follow the blind leading the blind, we're to walk in the light. See, in contrast to the blind leading the blind, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. See, Jesus isn't guessing about joy. He isn't guessing about life. He isn't guessing the way to satisfaction. He isn't fumbling around in dark hoping to find what everybody wants. He knows where it's at. He knows how to get there. He knows how to find it. He is not guessing his way to favor with God. You don't need to wish with him for joy or peace. He gives it. Not only is he the way but he tells us he is the light. He exposes the way. He shows the way to this true satisfaction. He says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Listen. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You follow him, he says. You won't be fumbling around blind in the dark. You will see where to go. No falling in the ditch, no being led astray, no being led this way and then that way. A teacher that doesn't know God cannot lead you to God. Jesus is God and he opens up the way. He lights the way. And he leads the way. And that's why Paul says, if you hear anybody speak of another gospel that points you in another direction than to Jesus, you don't listen to them. They're the blind leading the blind. We need real satisfaction. We need outward focus. We need to choose the right leader. And we need to keep our hearts pure. Keep our hearts pure. It says in verse 41... 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? You see, Jesus has humor, right? One point, he's talking about watching blind men stumble around and to fall in ditches because they can't see where they're going. And the next thing, he uses this great hyperbole where he talks about looking at other people with little dust might in their eye, but you've got this great big beam coming out of your own eye. It's meant to be uh, humorous. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your eye, your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The first thing Jesus reminds us of and tells us here is to examine your heart. Examine your heart. Don't judge another's heart. He's already addressed that when he's talked back in verse 37. He says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. That is, he's teaching us there not to have a spirit of arrogance, of self-righteousness and condemnation towards others. To look down on others in arrogance. Rather, he shows us here that we're to have a spirit of love and generosity. If I'm... If I'm busy arrogantly pointing out everyone else's fault, I'm not paying attention to my own heart. Too busy looking at everybody else's fault, and while I'm looking at everybody else's faults, my heart is rotting because I'm not caring for it. And all I'm doing it is filling it with arrogance, criticism, and self-righteousness. That puts me on very shaky ground, not solid ground. My arrogant judgment of others actually exposes the shallowness of my own spirituality. So judge your own heart, not others. The truth is we can't really see the other person's problems because we can't see clearly through our own problems. We're looking at others saying, oh, I can see what your problem is. We can't see that because we can't see past the plank that's in our own eye. We're fooling ourselves. The surest way to shake your ground in this life is to ignore dealing with the sin in your own life. David knew this well. In a time of sin, when he was rebuked and, and had to repent, he writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. There's the searching. There's the self-examination. And what is the result? Lead me in the way everlasting. Coming out of a time of sin in David's life, he seeks God to purify his heart. The result of the searching is to be led in the way of righteousness. So examine your heart and fill your heart with good treasures, he says. So you can't hide what's inside. We like to think we can We can't hide what's inside. You can't fake this process. What's inside comes out. And you may think that we don't see it, but we all do. 
And that's true of, of all of us. What's inside will be exposed. Our motives, our agendas, our hypocrisy will all be known. We're all sinful and what we hide in our heart and what we keep in our heart will come out. So, because you can't hide what's inside, fill your heart with good things. Fill your heart with good things. No examination of the heart is worthwhile unless it's followed by correction of the heart. No examination of the heart is worthwhile if it's not followed by correction of the heart. If your heart is filled with selfish desires for temporal things, your satisfaction will vanish. Jesus tells us in in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A rock-solid life doesn't come from filling our minds and, uh, and hearts with temporal things or even people. It comes by fixing our gaze on the eternal, something bigger than us, something greater, Jesus. Colossians says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. So, what do we set our minds on? Paul gives us a short list in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. These virtues are strong, eternal, and secure. Don't waste your life critiquing everyone else. Fill your heart with goodness and share that in forgiveness and generosity. Jesus is our rock. In him we find all we need for strength and stability in this life and in the life to come. What do you need to do to have stability in this life? Well, that brings us back to where we started, doesn't it? Obey what Jesus says. Do what he says you need. Real satisfaction, not temporal happiness. You need an outward focus of love, forgiveness, and generosity. You need to choose the right teacher. Jesus is the only way. You need to keep your heart pure. Examine your heart to get rid of the hypocrisy and fill it with Christ-like character. And so we end where we began. What will you do with the words of Jesus? Although, uh, like I said, verse 39, where he talked about the blind leading the blind, may address the Pharisees, by the end, by the time we get to the parable which we began with, the rock and the sand, there is absolutely no doubt, Jesus is saying there is a choice that we all must make. Will we follow Jesus' words and find him to be our rock? 
Or will we ignore his words and be swept away in this life and fall into the pit in the life to come? We're going to make him our rock. We need to firstly recognize and admit our need for God. To seek him as one starving for food, only he can satisfy. We need to admit our sin and sorrow over it and seek his forgiveness. And then you'll find rejoicing. Then you will have hope in this life and in the life to come. He is our rock. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that in sending Jesus, you have given us absolutely everything we need for life and godliness. That in him we find absolute and complete satisfaction. That in following his words, in obeying what he says, we can find safety, security, and stability in a world which can so easily toss us around. Help us, dear God, to listen to his words, to follow him, that indeed our lives would be built on a rock, not on the shifting sands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.